You know, at its root, all truth is simple, meaning that it's clear, it's concise. But it also requires us to think. You know, one of the original reasons for the public school system that we have in this country was to teach people how to read so they could read the scripture, because it is the highest of all intellectual endeavors, reading scripture, thinking scripture. Today, we're going to talk about original sin, what it is, what it is not. It's an important topic, very important topic. Because if you think about it, why have a gospel if you don't have original sin? But when you talk to people about original sin, they get really, you know, visibly unclear on what the subject is. So we're going to talk about it a little bit today. Um, first of all, the term original sin isn't really accurate. It wasn't Adam's sin that was the original sin. It was whose sin? Lucifer's. Right. His was the original sin. Now, original sin does apply for us in that it was the original sin of mankind. Right. Um, so, you know, it'd probably be more accurate to refer to it as Adam's sin. Um, I will call it throughout this whole teaching original sin because I'm used to it. But by doing so, you know what I'm talking about. Original sin is uniquely Christian. All right. We, this isn't something that we drew from the Judaic heritage, in other words. The, uh, the Jews reject the notion of original sin. To a Jew, he believes that sin is a violation of any of the 613 commandments against sin, or against, you know, any of the commandments that God gives us, uh, that it is a violation of that. That's what is to be condemned, but there is no original sin. The uh, Muslims reject original sin. The concept of original sin is not part of the Islamic doctrine. Muslims believe that humans are born without sin and with a desire to please God. Buddhists, the Buddhist Dharma Education Association, also expressly states the idea of sin or original sin has no place in Buddhism, okay? So anyway, we're going to look at this today. So take your Bibles and go to Genesis chapter 3. So it says in verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say, did he really say, you must not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And then Lucifer said, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. So in direct contradiction to what God said, the serpent said, verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God or a God, knowing good and evil, right? So God doesn't have your best interest in mind. God knows that if you eat this, you'll be like him. So he's keeping it back from you. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened 
and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Okay, so this is Adam's sin, and the sin was what? Disobedience. I mean, there were other associated sins as to why he did it, but the actual sin itself was disobedience, disobedience of God. He disobeyed God by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God had specifically said to Adam not to do this. Now, he, God, God never specifically spoke to Eve. She got this secondhand. But he specifically said to Adam, don't eat of this tree. So he, uh, Adam went into this with his eyes wide open. He knew exactly what he was doing. And so this sin, which we call original sin, has its effects upon all the human race, from Adam all the way down. When we talk about original sin, that's what we're talking about. It's the moral corruption that mankind possesses as a consequence to Adam's sin. It's a sinful disposition and manifesting itself in habitually sinful behavior. Does that make sense to everybody? In other words, we have a proclivity towards sin. It's a just a natural bent that when it comes to sin, I'm there. And not only that, but I do it habitually. It's habitual sinful behavior. Okay, so when we talk about original sin and we talk about man's sin, this is what we're saying. You think about it, even the agnostic or the atheist is able to see that there's something just not right with the human or with mankind, right? In my humanities class, we talked about the human condition, the human condition. And then, you know, of course, I've got my hand up. Well, what does that mean? Well, the human condition is this thing. Nobody can really describe it, but mankind has this tendency towards corruption and depravity and destruction. Nobody can articulate it, but they know it's there. And you think about it, with, with all of mankind's abilities and his ability to reason, why would mankind be on a bent towards depravity and destruction? Why is mankind's history defined by our wars? If you think about it, it's war after war after war. At any time, at any moment in the world's history, there's at least 100 wars going on. Isn't that amazing? It's just amazing. I mean, if you were to look at a common trait of mankind, what would it be? Murder and destruction. If you were to ask a, a humanist why that is, he'd say, well, it's mankind's, mankind's lack of enlightenment. But mankind is progressing. We're getting, we're evolving. We're becoming more enlightened. Really? Is that so? Well, then why is it that the 20th century was the most murderous century in the entire history of the world? Hundreds of millions of people were murdered. To me, it sounds like mankind's getting worse, not better. If you think even the term humanity, we use the word humanity, and most of the time when we say humanity, we mean it in the sense of, you know, this common decency of mankind. Where's your humanity? Well, if I were to look at humanity, I'd come up with a different definition. Humanity would mean murder and destruction. So as we're going to see here, this is far deeper than just a lack of enlightenment. Look in verse 8. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid themselves from God among the trees of the garden. So the first manifestation of sin is what? Hiding from God. Hiding from God. Verse 9, But the Lord God called to man and said, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So the first manifestation is hiding from God. Second, man, or, uh, you know, coexistent with that is 
fear. He was hiding because he was afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid of God's judgment. He was afraid of God's judgment. He knew he had done something wrong. For the first time, mankind experienced guilt. Guilt that he knew he had done something wrong. I think that's interesting. It said that he was, he said, I was afraid because I was naked. Well, he was naked back before the fall. What was the difference? Well, he realized he was naked and realized by the separation, his separation from God, that he no longer had God's covering. You see the point there? Look at verse 11. And he said, this is God, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, oh, it's the woman. It's the woman who made me do it. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed be, uh, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals, and you will crawl on your belly and you will eat the dust, eat dust all the days of your life. And you will put, and, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And that's the first prophecy of what? The coming Messiah, right? Jesus Christ. That's the first prophecy. God at that point knew that mankind needed a redeemer, okay? It goes on and it says in verse 16, the woman to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. So not only was there a consequence to mankind in this fall, but there was also the consequence to the creation itself thorns and thistles, right? I don't have to turn there, but in Romans it says the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Bondage to decay. And that is what our the, the entire creation is bound to because of this fall. And I think that's interesting. Verse 19, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of the skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So this is an act of redemption right here. It's this idea of life for life, that there had to be a sacrifice of animals as a substitution for what God expected. Remember what the word says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life from for Jesus Christ our, our Lord. So, so the idea of sacrifice was introduced here in Genesis. And look in verse 22. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us. You see us there? It's the heavenly council. Because uh, knowing good and evil, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and to take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground 
from which he w- he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. So God put that there. Now, why did he do that? Well, because mankind, if he had touched that tree, that w- mankind would have been forever in an unredeemable state. No redemption, right? That would have been it. So this is the end state of mankind after the fall. And the consequences weren't just for Adam and Eve. The consequences were passed upon all mankind, all mankind. Mankind is in a perpetual state of separation from and rebellion to God. He inherently fears God and hides from God. It says later of Adam's offspring, Cain, that he was angry with God. Remember that? So God... So mankind is afraid of God and angry at God. I've said it before in fellowship. This is how I see natural man in his relationship to God. He has a raised fist. That's mankind to God. Fear, anger, rebellion, and disobedience. That's the world. That's the history of mankind. Go to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5. That's a pretty sad history, isn't it? It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was in, it was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned, ruled from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did, who is a pattern of the one to come. Who's that one to come we're talking about there? Jesus Christ. So this this section of scripture, I have spent hours and hours and hours thinking about, and I've wrestled over it, and I've struggled with it, specifically in verse 12. Let's read that again. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men, because all have sinned. Notice that it doesn't say death came to all men because Adam sinned, but because all had sinned. And that was where I have struggled. That it, that Adam's sin, I, I did, I'm not dying because of Adam's sin, I'm dying because of my own sin. And I was like, that doesn't seem to fit. I, I was struggling with that. It seems like, according to this, that sin came into the world much like a pandemic, right? Sin entered the world and death entered with it, right? And death passed upon all men. All die. Why? Because Adam sinned? No, because all men have sinned. And I scratched my head and I was thinking, well, wait a minute. I thought original sin was because of Adam's sin. And then I was thinking, well, where does the guilt lie? Who's guilty? Is it Adam or is it man? Who's responsible? When I was a you know, good little Catholic boy, I was taught that I was guilty of Adam's sin. And I was, it used to really bother me, well, why am I held responsible for somebody else's sin? That didn't make any sense to me. It seemed very unfair to me. So I want to I stop here, and I want to just hold that thought, put a pin in that, and let's talk about theology. Now, contrary to what many believe, not all theology is wrong. Actually, there's a lot of things in theology, you know, other ministries, that's worthy of some consideration. And, and on this topic of original sin, I think that uh, there are some good points to be considered here. There are two main schools of thought in theology. One is called federalism, and the other one is called seminalism, okay? Federalism and seminalism. Okay, so what do these, these mean? Well, federalism means this, that Adam was a representative head of all mankind. 
It would be like Joe Biden is the representative head of all Americans, right? He's the leader, okay? And so this notion of original sin by this federalist point of view is that, well, here's an example. If Joe, Joe Biden got on a plane and flew over to Russia and sat down with Putin and got into an argument with Putin and said, doggone it, we're going to war, right? It was Joe Biden who got us into the war, but we pay the consequences, right? We've got to go with him because he's our representative head. And that's the idea behind this federalist approach to original sin. Now, I'm, I'm being very simplistic with it, but that's the idea, that Adam was a representative head of all humanity, and because he sinned, that sin passed upon all humanity, whether we liked it or not, whether we sinned or not, okay? Now, that poses some problems, that point of view. Uh, I want you to take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 2, Romans 2, and look in verse 2. It says that, now we know that God's judgment is true, or against those who commit such things is based on true truth. It, what it really means is God's judgment is true. Man's judgment is not true, but God's judgment is true. And then it goes, this entire, or the beginning part of Romans 2 explains how God's judgment is true. And in verse 6, it says, God will give to each person according to what he has done. Now think about that. Am I guilty for somebody else's sin? No, I'm guilty for my own sin. That's an important point here. So to say that Adam was representative of all humanity, and that because he sinned, I, that sin falls upon me. Well, that just doesn't work. God doesn't work that way. That's not, how, that's not God's true judgment. God wouldn't judge me wrong because of something he did. I think that's important that we think about that. That would be unjust, that I would be held responsible for something somebody else did. Now, the other point of view, and the point that I believe, is this seminalism school of thought. And it basically says that Adam's sin is the corruption in human nature that is passed on to Adam's posterity. That when Adam sinned, just as, just as the creation became corrupted, he became corrupted. Something changed. We know that to be true because what happened? His eyes were opened and he saw things differently and he was separated from God. There was something very different there, right? Something very different. He had a different nature about him. So that's important. In other words, the entire human race was genetically present in Adam, right? He's the parent of us all. And that was altered at that moment something changed and that change was related to all humanity okay adam's guilt was not passed on to all his children but his sinful nature was his sinful nature was when adam sinned he, he changed mankind took on his sinful nature this propensity that we talked about earlier to sin adam's children in their corrupted natures readily join in Adam's rebellion at every available opportunity and are therefore guilty of their own sins. 
Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, so Adam's sin, you know, the door was open. Adam's sin caused Adam to be changed. And that change was passed on to all mankind so that they could do their own sinning. You see that? Let me read that verse over, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. We are held responsible not for Adam's sin, but for our own sin. But we have our sin because we have a sin nature by virtue of Adam's sin. All right. Now, verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned, ruled from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did. So what does that mean? Well, that as a consequence... What do we get from Adam? We get a sin nature and we get mortality, right? A sin nature and mortality. One of the big ways that mankind was changed was that he became a mortal being, that he no longer had eternal life, that he became a mortal being. Now, just to keep in mind, and we're going to get to it later, but remember what happens in the end when we talk about in 1 Corinthians 15. In a moment, in, in the twinkling of an eye, an eye, you will be what? Changed. Changed. We will be changed. That the mortal will put on immortality, and the corrupt shall put on incorruption. You see what's happening there? It's fixing the problem, okay? Verse 15, though, in, uh, in Romans 5, it says, But the gift is not like the trespass. For the many died by trespass of one man. How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? So many have died, all mankind, except those of us who are alive now, have died by this trespass of Adam. And this death, by the way, is more than just a physical death. This is talking the lake of fire, the judgment, right? And mankind, you know, the wages of sin is death, the gift of God. And not only are we mortal, but because of man's sinfulness and the wages associated with them, mankind finds himself destined for the lake of fire right? Eternal death. Verse 16, again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one man and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification, right? Am I condemned because of Adam's sin? No, I'm condemned by my own sins, but like I said, I am predisposed to sin because of Adam, right? Verse 17, For if, by the trespass of one man, death ruled, reigned, ruled through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification to bring life for all men. So do you see that? These two men, right? The two men. You have the man Adam and the man Jesus Christ, who is called the second Adam or the last Adam. What Adam did, Jesus Christ fixed, okay? Verse 19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, right? It basically, that the law was added to condemn sin, and the trespass increased. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that amazing? I love it. Hallelujah. 
So we're still looking at original sin. Oddly enough, there are many Christians who don't believe that there's such thing as original sin or that, you know, of course, Adam sinned, but Adam's sin has no influence on us. And I don't believe that at all. Like I said, I believe that it is the sin nature, the corruption of mankind. And as I noted earlier, even the humanists can see that. Remember, even the humanists can say, well, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. <laughs> Humanity's got this problem. But for some reason, and you know, the interesting thing is I've seen a lot of the Unitarians. The Unitarians, a lot of times, get to the point where they don't believe in original sin, oddly enough. I, I just, I don't get it. So let's look at that. Is there, does the word confirm that there is this original sin that's been passed down to us, this sin nature? Well, let's look at it. Romans chapter 3. Romans 3. And look in verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? So Paul is in the process of confronting the Jews. Remember, the Jews thought, well, you know, if I do these, these 613 commandments of God, the Talmud, that you have all these laws and each good Jewish person would keep all these laws. And they were of the mindset that as long as I keep these laws, I'm good with God. Well, Jesus uh, and then Paul demonstrated to them that it's impossible to do this. And so Paul is pointing out to them, he says that, look, Jews, you can't keep the law, right? You know that the Gentiles can't keep the law, but you can't keep the law either. And, and so that's what he says here in Romans 3, 9. Well, what do we conclude? Are we better than they? Are we better than the Gentiles, we Jews? Right? Goes on, not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are uh, alike are all under sin. All humanity is under sin. You don't have to turn there, but First uh, John chapter 5 says, we know that we are the children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the wicked one, the evil one. And Galatians 3.22 says that the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised being given through the faith of Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the whole world lies under sin, all right? So there's something, <laughs> something got passed down. It wasn't just the ability to sin, something got passed down, what it is. Let's talk. So I was thinking about Shakespeare. Shakespeare was a humanist, okay? He was a cultural Christian, but the fact is he was, he was a Renaissance man, and he was a humanist. And humanists believe in the greatness of mankind, that mankind is great. And I was thinking about Shakespeare in his play called Hamlet. He said, what a piece of work is man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god. Wow, that's a rosy picture, isn't it? Go to uh, Romans chapter 3. While you're going there, I was thinking of uh, Jesus, how it said that he didn't entrust himself to them for he knew all. It wasn't that Jesus inherently knew every person, but he knew what man's nature was all about. It goes on to say he did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in man, right? See, apparently old Shakespeare hadn't been reading his Bible too often, or he would have known that the Bible doesn't hold a very flattering opinion of mankind, just the opposite. Romans chapter 3, it says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, no, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. 
There is no one who does good, not even one. Now remember, this is judging mankind, not by man's standards, but by God's standards, okay? And when God speaks, this is his indictment of mankind. And by the way, all this that we're reading here is a collection of different verses that Paul pulled together from the entire Old Testament, okay? Verse 13, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursings and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. Would you say that's a safe statement? I would. The way of peace they do not know. And then look at this last one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That doesn't sound like what Shakespeare said. Remember what he said? He said, in form and moving, how express and admirable. In action like an angel. In apprehension like a god? No, not at all. It goes on to say, now we know that whatsoever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so what? What's the purpose of the law? Every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable before God. That's the purpose of the law, that the law was there to indict to say guilty mankind, right? Guilty. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin, right? Look in uh, chapter 7, verse 7, Romans 7, verse 7. It says, what shall we say then, right? Is the law sin? The idea here is, is that every time I get around the law, I start sinning. Why am I sinning? Right? Is the law making me sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said had not said, do not covet. But here's the clincher, verse eight. But sin, hmm, sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of covetous desire. Or apart from the law, sin is dead. So here I am. I'm just a dumb, you know, kind of an ignorant fellow. I'm just going along. And then the commandment says, don't covet. And I'm like, well, what's coveting? Well, coveting means that you will, you desire what somebody else has. And then what happens? That sin nature within kicks in the gear and says, hmm, I hadn't even thought of that. That sounds like fun, right? Let's go do some coveting. Isn't that interesting? So it's not just an intellectual thing. I, you know, law says don't covet. And I say, oh, okay, no coveting. All of a sudden, this thing, whatever it is, I don't know what it is. It's, it's within me, and it starts to churn and say, let's go coveting, right? And that's how it works, isn't it? So on the one hand, the purpose of the law was to indict and say, don't do that. But every time it said, don't covet, I go, hmm, great idea, right? That's what sin does. It's, an, it's, a, it's a, a thing within me that is working. So when we talk about original sin, we talk about the sin nature. You know, I can't even imagine a Christian saying that there is no original sin. Of course there is, and it has an effect on all humanity. Look at verse 14. It says, we know that the law is spiritual, right? But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Mm -hmm. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do 
What I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good, that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but what? The sin living in me, the sin living in me, that sin nature that I have. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. Is that clear? Is that clear to everybody? That's what we're dealing with. And that's why it's such a just a misdirected thing when you have Christians who are trying to conform the flesh to make the sinful nature behave. We can't make the sinful nature behave. It's impossible to make the sinful nature behave. It will not conform. It will not conform. It goes on to say, for I have a desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil that I do not want to do, this is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Okay, so Paul draws a distinction between him and the sin within, okay? There's a distinction. A person who does not believe, a Christian who does not believe in original sin is misled, mistaken. Sorry, go to John 3. John 3, so what is, what is there to be done? We have the sin nature. It's very clear in Scripture that there is a sin within, and what do we do? Look in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Go to Romans 3. Look at verse 21. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. Remember, there was a righteousness of the law. What was the righteousness of the law? Do the law. If you do the law, you'll be righteous. But what did we just read? When, we, when the law says, don't covet, what happens? That nature within says, I'm going to go covet, right? So our, the more we learn about the law, the more sinful we become, oddly enough. God knew that there was no redemption through the knowledge of the law because the knowledge of the law was a consciousness of sin. So now we're talking about a righteousness apart from the law, okay? A, a righteousness apart from the law in verse 22. This righteousness from God comes through faith or trust in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Remember in Romans chapter 1, it says, from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith, right? The faith to faith. The faith of Jesus Christ is not a thing. It's trusting in his work that he did it for us. Does that make sense? Remember throughout the book of Acts, what was the theme? And it's also in Romans that those who are going to be saved are they that call upon the name of the Lord. Remember when Jesus was sitting down with Nicodemus and, and Jesus said, well, remember Moses in, in, the, you know, in the wilderness and how he made that brass serpent and he held it up and people who looked at the brass serpent were delivered. That's the faith of Jesus Christ that we are to gaze upon Jesus Christ and through looking to him, calling upon his name, that he delivers us, that he delivers us. Not only in the initial salvation that we get saved from our, you know, that we change natures into the, or we have this new nature within, but also throughout our lives. That's, that's it. We're looking to Christ. So let me read 22 again. This is the righteousness of God that comes from faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. 
through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Okay, make sense, everybody? It's those who call upon the name of Jesus. Where then is your boasting? It's excluded. On what principle? On the principle of the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the un uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Isn't that interesting? We uphold the law. What was the law? Well, it was a righteousness that was by the law, but unachievable by the law. Does that make sense? But the righteousness was still the requirement. We're getting that righteousness by faith, by faith in Jesus Christ. That as we look at Jesus Christ, we are blessed. We have the justification in Christ. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Look in verse 1. It says, As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the rulers of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are what? Disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our, what's the words? Sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, objects of wrath, meaning that God's anger was revealed against us, as it is against the whole world. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We have changed natures. We are not the same nature as we were. We have a sin nature, but we have Christ in us. We have Christ in us. Verse 8, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's Christ in you. It's Christ in you. Go, we're going to finish up in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And in 51, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be what? Changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, where the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised, what? Incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Isn't that awesome? That is it. That's what original sin was, and that's how it's conquered in Christ. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for that, and we thank you, Father, for the truth of the scriptures on this. I thank you, Father, that we don't get our heads turned by the various 
doctrines out there, whether they're a humanist doctrine or even the doctrine of a well-meaning brother, Christian brother or sister. If it's wrong, Father, I thank you that we can stand the straight and narrow and, and keep our heads about us. I thank you, Father, for the integrity of your word in our souls. I thank you, Father, most for the accomplished work of Jesus Christ, that he saved us from this death. Thank you for all these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Sin runs deep. Your grace is more. Grace is found, is where you are, where you are, Lord, I am free, holiness is Christ in me.